This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. All right, welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you. The weather in, in Texas this week has been cold, like genuinely cold, even cold by our standards. And, and they're certainly not used to it. So it's, it's a terrible time for a power grid collapse, which is uh, essentially what happened this week. So millions are left without power as this uh, cold weather uh, socked in pretty much the entire state. Now, the thing is, something similar happened 10 years ago. In fact, the, the Super Bowl was being played uh, just outside of Dallas in 2011. Plunging temperatures forced rolling blackouts then. Three million were left without power. And there were warnings at the time that the Texas grid was not protected against cold weather. And this week has, has certainly, I think, underscored that point once again. So, yeah, I mean, it's a real horrible situation. Then the millions left without power and water and uh, exacerbating what's uh, already a tough situation to deal with. Now, it's pretty clear that uh, here in Alberta, we can handle the cold. Our power grid can handle the cold. So maybe that's not something we need to worry about. But, I mean, it's a story about extreme weather. This is a cold manifestation of that. But what if we had a run of summer weather, like Texas deals with on a regular basis? How would our grid fare? So I think there maybe are some lessons to be learned from all of this. And uh, that's the subject of a piece this week uh, we co-authored by uh, our next guest, uh, Blake Schaefer. is an assistant professor of the Department of Economics at the University of Calgary and uh, co-wrote this piece with a researcher from the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, Professor Schaefer, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Rob. Nice to chat with you again. First of all, and I think, you know, there's maybe a, some misunderstanding or a lack of understanding what happened in, in Texas this week. I think there's been a disproportionate amount of attention uh, on wind energy in particular, alternatives more generally speaking. But what's the assessment, as best we understand it, of what went wrong here? Yeah, sure. I mean, you're you're exactly right. It's only natural, I guess, right after an event like this to do a lot of finger pointing and sure. try to assign, assess and assign blame. And, 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 and no doubt there's also some some bad faith assignment of blame going on, you know, people's preconceived notions of their least favorite fuel uh, being determined at fault. The reality is it's an all of the above situation. I think it's cliche in these power crises to use the term perfect storm. But this really was one. We had a combination of a, a demand event that was off the charts, so well beyond any reliability assessment, sort of one in 10 type assessment. So extreme demand for this time of year, it actually rivaled their summer peaks, which is what the Texas grid is built for. So that's on the demand side. Then on the supply side, the, the, that same weather, it, it brought in correlated failures amongst all types of supply. You know, simply put, they're, they're not built for this. They, they haven't winterized their infrastructure. So across the board, I mean, on wind, yeah, you had very little wind generation in the cold temps, just as we have here in Alberta. Maybe we'll get to that later, but um, we get very little wind in our coldest days. But the reality is that's what Texas counts on. So a great piece in the New York Times today called Wind Reliably Unreliable. And um, 
it's a bit of a play on words, but it, it's it's true. They they only count on about six thousand megawatts of wind generation in the winter out of a capacity of about twenty five thousand. And wind performed just slightly under that, you know, anywhere between two and six thousand over this period. So it did underperform, but you know, roughly in line with where it was expected. Thermal plants, there was big failures on thermal plants for a host of reasons. So part of it was some were simply offline in advance for scheduled maintenance. This is not normally the time of year they have extreme events, but also freeze-offs across the board. So freeze-offs from instrumentation of the plants. Uh, natural gas delivery systems, natural gas production, and so at the wells there was freeze-offs. In the end, about 40% of thermal generators were offline during the event. Even nuclear failed. One of, one of the four mm-hmm. nuclear reactors uh, failed because a sensor froze and we had to shut it down. So it was really an across-the-board failure of supply coupled with this extreme de- demand and the, the grid simply couldn't cope. Right. And I think one of the other factors at play here, and, and it's relevant, I think, in Alberta context, too, is that if if your grid is down or your grid's unable to generate what it needs to, ideally, you can be in a position to import electricity, import power from other jurisdictions. And Texas really isn't able to, are they? They're really not. Yeah. So we, we do mention this in the piece. This is our big takeaway. And applies to Alberta as well. So Texas is actually its very own interconnection. So it is North American context, we really have a Western interconnect, Alberta, BC, all the way down to California and the desert southwest. There's an Eastern interconnect. And then there's Texas. Actually, Quebec as well. Quebec is its own thing, too, sort of like Texas. (laughs) But Texas is its own grid. They have only a few uh, DC connections, so they're very controllable connections, and they're very small. Maybe 1% of total supply can be met by imports. Alberta, we're part of the Western grid. Uh, but our lines are small. So we have lines to BC, Saskatchewan, and Montana. At, at the most, they can deliver about 8% of total supply. Compare that to California, where you can get you know, upwards of 60% of, um, of demand being met through imports at any time. It's a completely different ballgame. So while they have a lot more variable renewable energy, they also have the more ability to lean on neighbors at times of need. Uh, we don't have that here in Alberta, and they certainly don't in Texas. And, you know, this was chosen purposefully. It allows them to be their own regulator, so they're not actually regulated by the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission in Texas. Um, but we're seeing the ramifications of that. They they had no one to share this, this challenge with in this event. Right. And, look, and maybe if they'd winterized uh, their infrastructure, it would be less of an issue. So, yeah, I mean, a big part of this story is Texas didn't winterize. This is the result. Here in Alberta, it's not a concern. We, we definitely know to winterize our infrastructure we can handle, like the cold snap we just went through. But that doesn't mean that there aren't lessons for us to learn here, right? So putting aside the, the winterize aspect mm-hmm. of it and looking at it more as a, an extreme weather kind of situation, what, what are the takeaways for Alberta? Yeah, exactly right. So it's about being ready for the unexpected. In, in Texas, that meant... No, they weren't ready for peak demand in winter. The, the daily demand on last Sunday, so a, a weekend, uh, was higher than you know, peak demand, daily demands in the summertime. This, this is pretty incredible. Um, so they weren't ready for a season that they're ill-prepared for. And similarly here in Alberta, like you said, we're well-prepared for the winter. We just broke a new demand record last week, and I don't think anybody oh, even heard about it. Right. Um, it was, there was nearly a, a peep out of our market. We had high prices, 
Uh, but that's to be expected, the way our market works. But no system emergencies, no no issues, no emergency orders. So we're ready. We're not as ready for the summertime. And, uh, you know, I've done some research with a, a colleague at University of Ottawa on on changing demands for electricity with, with the growth in air conditioners and simply rising temperatures we're seeing. And, and we will, not too distant future, be a summer peaking region. Uh, we'll have higher demand in the summer than, than in the winter. And, and, you know, in large part, our, our grid isn't really set up for that. So whereas in Texas, they have the cooling infrastructure available. Um, so that's something we definitely need to, to be thinking about because we have similar failures in our thermal generators in the summer as they were facing in the winter for different reasons, but, but the similar challenges. So that we've got to start prepping our infrastructure to be prepared for these new extremes. So does that mean to to summarize, <laughs> as in the the season summarize it? Is is that a thing, or is it about capacity? What what? How, how do we need to approach that? Yeah, well, so some of it is about thermal rating for transmission lines, so yeah. really getting detailed into the engineering. Some of it is an available cooling water capacity. So typically, to, to cool power plants, you're 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 using a cooling water running through it. So having sufficient amounts of that that it can remain cool. Uh, is critical. And these are just sort of things that are commonplace in warmer climates that are perhaps less required uh, to think about here. It's not to say we don't have them, but uh, there's a there's a sort of a level or a spec of engineering that we can get to that we need to start thinking about whether we get there. I, I think the other takeaway, though, is just the challenge in general of climate-resilient capacity. Um, it's going to be increasingly important. We're going to have these extremes. Uh, renewables are great for what they give, you know, which is cheap, clean, raw energy, but they don't give that dependable capacity, and we know that. And so it's about finding solutions that we can couple with it that can withstand all of these climate extremes. Right, and I mean, that, that's long been a knock on uh, wind power in particular, and to some extent solar power as well, that in Alberta in the winter, uh, it doesn't get very windy, and there's a lot less daylight, a lot less sunshine. So what, what yeah. are the implications then for incorporating more wind and solar into our grid? Yeah, so we just need to, you know, treat it for what it is. It's, it's mm-hmm. raw energy. It's, it's, it's displacing fuel that would otherwise be coming from a power plant, so saving the cost of that, and avoiding the emissions that would be coming from a fossil fuel power plant. So that's great for energy, but it's, it's not going to provide us richness of capacity, uh, and we just simply can't expect it to. Uh, nor would we expect to rely on a single power plant. So I always say when I'm, you know, I teach a course on this, it's about system thinking, right? It's a complete portfolio. So it's about thinking what, what complements cheap raw energy quite well. Uh, so it can be peaking capacity that is climate resilient. So as you use the term, summarize, mm-hmm. um, you know, or winterize in Texas. Increasingly, though, it's not going to be natural gas in, in the long run as we head to net zero. If it is, it's got to have carbon capture associated with it. Uh, so it's likely to be things like hydrogen. That's got a lot of potential. It's things like storage, but currently our storage is only hour to hour, and we're going to need day-to-day type storage. So we need longer duration storage. Transmission is a, is a great solution because it, it, it complements really nicely with our neighbors where you've got BC, and if we stretch it all the way to Manitoba, these flexible, dispatchable reservoir hydro coupled with the cheap and abundant renewables in Alberta and Saskatchewan. So, um, you know, storage is a great solution. And then the, third, the, the fourth rail, I guess, is... Um, is demand response, engaging the demand side more. And uh, this is an area I'm particularly focused on in my research, but, you know, as EVs start to grow bigger, they're a really big load, 
we have to find a way to encourage folks to charge those outside of the peak periods. Uh, to most folks, it, w- it won't make a difference as long as they have the range in the morning. So we have to find a way to incentivize those shifts. And that's going to be critically important. And I think that's a, something you're going to see in, in the years to come is engaging the demand side to manage swings in our system a bit more. Well, yeah, I wanted to ask, is, I mean, is it going to be more than eventually just about shifting? And if we look at the more optimistic forecast for electric vehicles, mm-hmm. that's just going to mean a whole lot more demand, period. Do, do we have the capacity uh, to, to cope with that? Well, again, so more demand just in a, in a quantum is about energy. And so we won't have a problem getting a lot more energy on the grid from renewables. It's about energy when we want it. So that's about capacity. So as long as we're not dealing with periods of, you know, weeks of, of, of dearth of wind or solar, that won't be a, an issue. Uh, it does pose a challenge, though, because we do see in the wintertime, there'll be periods of, you know, multi-day with, with low wind. So it's certainly some extra storage is going to be required for that. But as long as there is some uh, time during the day where there's an abundance, uh, you can shift. California offers a great case in point right now. For this past week, the prices of power have been $50 a megawatt hour through the middle of the day and $1,000 a megawatt hour through the morning and evening peak. Yet people aren't charged a time-based rate. So there's people are charging their electric vehicles mostly when they get home from work, right when it's actually $1,000 on the grid. We need to encourage those folks to shift that usage to the middle of the day. And so you know, some, there's lots of opportunities to do that. And I think that's an area where both consumers can save a lot of money and, and the grid can save a lot of costs. Very interesting. We'll leave it there. Blake, thanks so much for your insight on this. Appreciate it. Make some time for us. Cheers. Thanks, Rob. All right. Take care. There you go. That's uh, Blake Schaefer at the University of Calgary, Assistant Professor of Economics, also with the School of Public Policy. Uh, so his thoughts on, uh, you know, sort of implications and lessons learned, I guess, from, from this uh, situation in Texas this week. We've got to take a break here. 403-974-TALK is our number. We're back after this. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.